Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, media are soberly reporting a congressional panel's warning against an abrupt or precipitous withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan, because that might lead to civil war in the country. If spinning-in-the-grave imagery were real, George Orwell will have screwed himself to the Earth's core by now. The rest of us can try and puzzle out what's behind the more war will lead to peace argument with Phyllis Bennis, director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies and co-author of Ending the U.S. War in Afghanistan, a primer. Also on the show... North Korea using cyber attacks to update nukes is the latest scary buzzword-packed headline from the region, representative of U.S. media coverage that centers the entire story of Korea on Kim Jong-un's potential threat to Americans, pushing aside all of the people in North and South Korea who seek an end to the militarized tension they've lived under for more than 70 years. We'll hear from Yun Lee, U.S. national organizer for Women Cross DMZ. They're part of the coalition Korea Peace Now that's behind a new report called Path to Peace. Ending the forever wars today on Counterspin. But first, a quick look back at some recent press. Prominent cabinet member of both the Nixon and Reagan administrations, George Shultz died recently and prompted no fewer than three fawning tributes in the Washington Post, in addition to the paper's official obituary. As Julie Holler wrote for FAIR.org, former George W. Bush Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice got space to wax poetic about how Shultz never lost sight of the centrality of freedom to the human experience and to human dignity. The Post published a tribute from former reporter Lou Cannon, who called Schultz a man who spoke truth to power and lived his life in service to his nation and humanity. The next day, Post columnist David Ignatius gushed, quote, Watching him over so many years was an education in the fact that the good guys, the smart, decent people who take on the hard job of making the country work, do sometimes win in the end, close quote. One thing Schultz won in the mid-'80s was acceptance of the U.S.'s right to preemptively strike against future attacks, dubbed the Schultz Doctrine, that helped pave the way for the endless war on terror. Schultz was mentor to both George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and chaired the Committee for the Liberation of Iraq after September 11th. None of the three Post contributors, nor the paper's nearly 3,000-word obituary, mentioned Bush— Iraq, or the War on Terror. Iran-Contra was a scandal in which the Reagan administration secretly sold arms to Iran in order to fund, against congressional prohibitions, the right-wing Contra terror squads working to overthrow the leftist Sandinista government in Nicaragua. Prosecutor Lawrence Walsh concluded in his final report that Schultz and other high officials were informed of what was going on. The post-obituary tried to spin that by claiming that By Mr. Schultz's account, he argued vigorously in private against the arms sales to Tehran and by avoiding any mention of the contra half of the scandal, maybe because Schultz actively participated in talks about getting around Congress's interdiction. 
establishment obituaries that rewrite history to make official heroes fit for adoration serve neither the dead nor the living. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. An abrupt U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan undermines the fragile peace, was the headline on a Washington Post op-ed back in November from the co-chairs of the Afghanistan study group. It fit nicely with the Post's own editorial view expressed in September that, quote, the chance for an Afghan peace will depend on the willingness of the U.S. president to maintain U.S. forces in place until the Taliban show a genuine will to settle. Close quote. A definitive break with al-Qaeda, the Post said, is a precondition. In between, in October, the Post reported how the U.S. military is quietly working with the Taliban in parts of Afghanistan to try and weaken the Islamic State, but don't let that confuse you. The point is, a bipartisan panel says the Biden administration should ignore a May 1st deadline set for the withdrawal of 2,500 troops in order to, in the report's words, give the peace process sufficient time to produce an acceptable result. Let there be no mystery. Elsewhere, the report states the overall objective as, quote, a negotiated stable peace that meets U.S. interests, close quote. What truly are we to make of the claim that the trick to ending the longest ever U.S. war is to do something other than end it? Phyllis Bennis directs the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. She's co-author of Ending the U.S. War in Afghanistan, a primer, as well as author of numerous titles, including Before and After, U.S. Foreign Policy and the War on Terror. Welcome back to Counterspin, Phyllis Bennis. Great to be with you, Janine. Well, maybe let's start with what the report says is central, Quote, the most important revision is to ensure that a complete withdrawal of U.S. troops is based not on an inflexible timeline, but on all parties fulfilling their commitments. Close quote. I feel as though virtually every word in that sentence is more complicated or problematic than presented. Yeah, it's pretty complicated. (laughs) You're absolutely right in what you're challenging here. What this would do is say that these long-fought, very difficult negotiations that the U.S. carried out with the Taliban that led to an agreement last February calling on the U.S. to engage in a certain timetable of troop withdrawals, etc., shouldn't be taken seriously. That because our assessment is that the Taliban's break with al-Qaeda, which is not of course, any longer based in Afghanistan and has not been for about 19 years now, that that's not good enough. We want more. It's not clear exactly what we want, but we want more. And it implies that somehow keeping U.S. ground troops in Afghanistan is somehow going to help bring about better negotiations between the corrupt and very ineffective Afghan government and the Taliban. The Taliban, of course, these days controls more territory in Afghanistan than the government does. And that's with these decades of U.S. occupation by different numbers of troops, ranging from about 2,500 or so, what there are now, up to more than 100,000 that had been occupying Afghanistan in the earlier stages of this war. So at the end of the day, we come back to the question of what is this war for? Who benefits? Who benefits from 
ending it. And what does it even mean to talk about ending? Because the other key point here, Janine, is that what the Afghan study group talked about and what U.S. policymakers debate in Congress, in the White House, in the State Department, in the Pentagon, is the question of ground troops. There's now about 2,500 ground troops. It's not very many. They should leave, certainly, because they're not playing a decent role there that's helping anybody in particular. And it's time we end this war. But we should be very clear that it's not primarily the ground troops that are causing such death and destruction to people in Afghanistan. That's coming from U.S. drone strikes and airstrikes. And no one is talking about ending that. That's what they like to call the counterterrorism war, which is very separate from this question of should we withdraw troops? What about our negotiations with the Taliban? It's as if those things are completely separate. Ah. When in fact, it turns out that the U.S. and its allies in the Afghan Air Force, which is not much of an air force, it's a little air force, but it's mainly U.S. airstrikes and drone strikes. Those strikes have killed more and more people in, in recent years. Last year, the airstrikes and drone strikes killed civilians at a rate 330 percent higher than 2017. So that now, in the last several years, more civilians are being killed by U.S. air and drone strikes than are being killed by the Taliban. So if our goal in this war is to stop killing Afghans, we're going about it all wrong. And, and what an artificial distinction. Uh, what, what a joke played on people who were trying to follow along to pretend that this troop withdrawal means the U.S. out of Afghanistan, Indeed. as though it, it meant, you know, a material change in the life of Afghanistan's people, you know. Well, well when, right. you know, David Ignatius underscored all the reports points in the Washington Post and said, basically, the U.S. has to keep forces in Afghanistan because admitting defeat, which, you know, let's not even go into that imagery, but, you know, would mean a likely civil war. I'm going to try to say it dryly. Would mean a likely civil war, would mean Taliban dominance, and would lead to an eventual reestablishing of al-Qaeda safe havens. Those are the reasons that the U.S. needs to stay. I mean, it just sounds kind of absurdist. Well, you know what's so interesting here? If you, if you parse them out, the first one about it will lead to a civil war. Well, there is a civil war. It's precisely what's underway. It's just that the U.S. is backing one side in the civil war. There was a civil war in Afghanistan throughout the 1990s. In 1996, the Taliban won the civil war. They won it partly militarily. This was after years of brutal bombing by all sides of Kabul. And the Taliban partly won militarily, and they partly won by convincing a lot of people in Afghanistan that they would end the war. And that was what led people to support them. It wasn't because of their incredibly harsh interpretations of Islamist restrictions, particularly for women. It was because they said they would end the war. And that's what people desperately needed in this desperately poor country. So the notion that somehow this is not a civil war, it's just what the U.S. did was wipe out that government that had won the, the earlier civil war, installed its own government, and immediately a new war began between the Taliban and this government backed by the U.S. That's still a civil war. It's an Afghan war. The only reason I think that Ignatius and others add in this notion of, if we don't, the Taliban will take over and bring back al-Qaeda, is grounded in fantasy. The notion that al-Qaeda is somehow not 
doing whatever they might do because they're not in Afghanistan. First of all, makes no sense. Secondly, they're not in Afghanistan. Their leadership is based in Pakistan. And, you know, the U.S. has its own issues and relationships with Pakistan. But this notion that somehow all the Taliban wants to do is bring back the relationship with al-Qaeda is based, as far as I can tell, on nothing. You know, this is not something that helped the Taliban when they were in charge in Afghanistan. I don't think they have any intention of trying to repeat that disaster for, from their vantage point. So there really isn't any basis to say that continuing this war has any connection to protecting people in this country, to keeping Americans safe. There is no military solution to terrorism, as we hear over and over again. This war in Afghanistan alone has cost almost $2 trillion. $2 trillion. That's one of those numbers that is so enormous that it's almost impossible to understand what it really means. More than 38,000 Afghan civilians have died in this war. 2,400 American soldiers, more than 2,400, have died in this war. And, and for what? The Taliban still controls more territory than before. The U.S. has invested $24 billion in economic development, and, and Afghans still live in one of the poorest countries in the world. Most Afghans still live in poverty. It has one of the worst levels of maternal mortality and infant mortality in the world. So exactly who do we think is benefiting from the continuation of this war? Well, I, I wanted to ask you finally, I, I feel as though it's been answered, but I want to pull it out separately. It might seem a long time ago that the invasion of Afghanistan was presented as, after we got through various pretenses, about saving Afghan women from the Taliban, and you've touched on it. But I very recently saw a women's website that said, don't let the U.S. abandon Afghan women. And I just wonder, how do you respond? Given what we know, how do you respond to that? Yeah, it's a very serious question, because women in Afghanistan live very, very tough, difficult, challenging lives, very cruel in many cases in terms of isolation, lack of decent access to education and health care, etc. And in the cities in particular, the, the two major cities of Kabul and Kandahar, I think that things are better for some women. There has been the creation of a very small middle class, and women have gotten access to education that they did not have before. But the vast majority of women in Afghanistan don't live in the cities. They live in tiny rural towns, little villages, small isolated villages scattered over a huge country. And for those women, their lives are very constrained, and they were during the Taliban, and they are now. The difference is not very significant. So I think, you know, when we look at will any women suffer, yes, I think some will, if there were to be an absolute takeover by the Taliban. But that's not really what's on anybody's agenda, I don't think. In a number of areas, Taliban commanders have negotiated arrangements with local leaders, particularly local religious leaders, who also want their daughters to get access to education. And they've been able to create some schools for girls. So it's not as bad in the areas of Taliban control as it was when the Taliban was in charge of the whole country, nor is it probably as good as in some small areas of Kabul. But what we have to recognize is that the oppression of women in Afghanistan is not limited to the Taliban. 
the opposition to the Taliban, which the U.S. embraced first back in the 1980s as an anti-Soviet force, these were Afghans who were not part of the Taliban. One of them, they, they were brought to meet with President Reagan at the time in the White House. One of them, a guy named Gulbadin Hekmatyar, a well-known warlord, He's credited, if you can use the term, for inventing the use of acid to be thrown in the face of young women and girls who have the audacity to claim they want to go to school. And he's somebody on the side of the government, the U.S.-backed government. So the notion that somehow there's this enormous gap between the Taliban and the current government simply isn't true. I'll, I'll end with one story. I spent some time years ago with a young woman who was at the time the youngest member of the Afghan parliament after the installation of, a, of the government by the U.S. There were only a few women in the parliament. She was the youngest. And as a result, she was under enormous pressure. She had to move about with bodyguards. She couldn't move in many cases. She had to live in different safe houses. She was under enormous pressure. She was out of the country at one point. We were both in Europe, and, and I asked her, I said, you know, what about this whole question of what's going to happen to women and to civil society, particularly women's organizations, if the U.S. pulled out? And she said, you know, we women in Afghanistan and we in civil society, we have three enemies, three opponents in our country. One is the Taliban. Two is this group of warlords disguised as a government that the U.S. supports. And the third is the U.S. occupation. She said, if you in the West could get the U.S. occupation out, we'd only have two. And I thought that was an extraordinarily pragmatic view. There was no illusion mm -hmm. that pulling out U.S. ground troops, or even, in this case, ending the air war, will end the war altogether. It will stop some killings, which is not a bad thing, given that we've been killing in Afghanistan for 19 years, almost 20 years. But it's not going to end the conflict. It's not going to end the war. Only Afghans can do that. What our presence is doing is preventing them from resolving it in ways that we may not like. But at the end of the day, it's not our country. And we don't have the right to tell Afghans or others how they should deal with governing their own countries. Phyllis Bennis directs the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Thank you so much, Phyllis Bennis, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. It's been a pleasure. Despite its devastating, destructive toll, the Korean War has been dubbed the Forgotten War for the lack of public awareness or understanding in the U.S. Many Americans might be surprised to hear calls for peace on the Korean Peninsula because we're rarely made aware that the conflict there is ongoing, much less the U.S. role in it. And then again, we don't very often hear the phrase Korean Peninsula. We're more accustomed to seeing North and South Korea presented as natural antagonists and North Korea as a virtual cartoon of an official enemy about whom no claim is too grandiose. Into this context of myth and missing information comes a new call for a peace agreement to officially end the war. The report called Path to Peace was compiled by the Korea Peace Now Coalition, and we're joined now by Hyun Lee. U.S. National Organizer for Women Cross DMZ, part of Korea Peace Now. She joins us now by phone from Philadelphia. Welcome to Counterspin, Yun Lee. Hi, thanks for inviting me, Janine. 
Thanks for that introduction. Sure. Well, I do think that some people, while they might understand that the armistice signed in 1953 is not officially the same thing as a peace agreement, I think they'd be surprised to hear the present day situation described as a crisis. So maybe first, what should we know about what makes the current state of affairs for people in the region unacceptable and makes action necessary? Yes. Well, your audience may know that when the Korean War ended in 1953, it ended with an armistice, which is a temporary ceasefire that recommended within 90 days of signing the agreement, there should be a political conference held to discuss the permanent settlement of the Korean War. Well, to this day, 70 years later, that has not happened. And so the war is unresolved, which means that tens of thousands of troops on both sides have been in a constant state of readiness for war. And that's been going on every day for almost 70 years. The U.S. still has 28,000 troops there. This is not a normal situation, is what we're trying to say through the report. All sides have been pouring billions of dollars into a perpetual arms race that are about the destruction of the other side. And people live in constant fear of war. Now it's potentially nuclear war. So what we're saying through this report is let's end this abnormal, outdated armistice situation. Let's end the unresolved Korean War, which is the longest U.S. overseas conflict, And replacing the armistice with a peace agreement is the best way to do that. In a piece that you wrote for Truth Out in December, you say how U.S. policymakers have spent decades asking, and I would add media have spent those decades echoing, how do we get North Korea to give up nuclear weapons? You know, that's the question. Yeah. And that what we're hoping for, and we perhaps have an opening with a new administration, is to shift that to how do we get to peace? Yes. How do we get to peace with North Korea? The current story is very much about fear and sanction and containment. And this report reflects a different vision of what's possible. So, so tell us about the, the peace-first approach that this report is talking about. Sure. So as you say, I do believe that for far too long, Washington has been asking the wrong question on how to resolve the conflict with North Korea. And that question has been, how do we get rid of North Korea's nuclear weapons? Well, that assumes that the problem actually began with North Korea's nuclear weapons. So the solution, naturally, is to get rid of them. This has been the approach for the last 25 years, and we have come up empty-handed. What we're saying with the report is, let's step back and ask a different question. How do we actually get to peace and prevent the risk of a nuclear war? And our solution is to get to the root of the problem, and that is the unresolved Korean War. So I I just want to stress the urgency of this issue. You know, Secretary of State Tony Blinken has recently said that the U.S. should squeeze North Korea and cut off its access to resources to get North Korea to the negotiating table. On the other hand, at North Korea's Workers' Party Congress last month, Kim Jong-un said they will continue to develop nuclear weapons unless there is a fundamental change in U.S. policy. So I believe that unless something shifts, the stage is actually set 
for another nuclear standoff. And I believe it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. But as we know, we are currently grappling with multiple crises, the pandemic, climate change. We cannot afford another nuclear crisis like what we saw in 2017. So what we're trying to say is, you know, President Biden's theme is to build back better. The best thing that he can do to reduce the threat of nuclear war with North Korea and build back better on the Korean Peninsula and the Korean War with a peace agreement. You know, I think for many people, the story is one about potential future conflict. And I think what this report, one of the things that it underscores is that this is a crisis now, you know, that that the militarization, the literal separation of families, the absence of peace in the region is a crisis now. Although it could, of course, become a, a more encompassing, uh, devastating, beyond belief conflict, it already is a, a problem. I think that's something missing from the U.S. conversation about Korea. That's right. And what our report also raises is a fundamental question about, you know, what makes us truly secure? We are spending close to a trillion dollars every year on military and defense. And we have to ask ourselves, has it made us safer? You know, the multiple crises we face today cannot be resolved militarily. So we're also trying to say that we need to shift our priorities now from more to human needs. And in the case of Korea, a peace agreement would actually allow all parties to do that so that all sides can start to reduce their arms. Well, the coalition's full name is Korea Peace Now, Women Mobilizing to End the War. It's a global coalition of women's peace organizations. And and part of the message of the report is that women have to be part of the peace process. I take it, first of all, that that hasn't been happening. Why is that so key? Yeah, because we believe that the human cost of the unresolved war has a gendered impact. And we talk about this in our report. There is a chapter dedicated to this issue. Uh, For example, the long history of state-sanctioned violence against women who work around U.S. military bases in Korea. Also, the detrimental impact of sanctions on women in North Korea. That was the subject of another report we published two years ago. And our feminist vision of peace raises a fundamental question about what actually makes women more secure. And war and militarization, we believe, are at the bottom of that list. And we hope that women in key positions in the new administration will support policies that make women secure. And again, in the case of Korea, a peace agreement that ends the constant threats of war, the 70 years of militarization and arms race, that is the best path for peace and security for all people, including women. We've been speaking with Yun Lee, U.S. National Organizer for Women Cross DMZ. Find the report Path to Peace online at koreapeacenow.org. Thank you very much, Yun Lee, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine, for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.